Our Bible reading this morning is taken again from the epistle of Paul, the apostle, to the Colossians. We're reading from Colossians chapter 1, and I want to read together the first eight verses. Let's hear the word of God. The words will come up on the screen. Please follow along. But if you have your Bible, as we've said so often, it would be good that you got the scriptures opened at the place appointed for reading and followed the reading for yourself so that you can not only hear the word of God, but that you can see the word of God. And that will be a great aid and asset to you. Reading, of course, from the authorized version, believing it to be a most faithful and reliable translation of the Holy Scriptures. One thing I thank God for the Free Presbyterian Church for is that they have a very high view of the Scriptures. Every Free Presbyterian minister and elder, every true believer within the Free Presbyterian Church believes in the verbal and the uh, complete inspiration of the Holy Scriptures. Word for word, as God has given it. Every word is pure, precious, and powerful. Let's hear God's word. Colossians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timotheus our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ, which are at Colossae, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love which you have to all the saints, for the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof ye heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come unto you, as it is in all the world, and bringeth forth fruit, as it doth also in you, since the day ye heard of it, and knew the grace of God and truth, as ye also learned of Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is for you a faithful minister of Christ, who also declared unto us your love in the Spirit. Amen. We'll end the reading there at verse 8. And we pray God will stamp with his own approval and blessing this reading of his own precious, infallible word. Now this morning, we are continuing with our series of expository sermons in the book of Colossians. And my text today is taken from Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 to 5. And my theme today is entitled The Essential Signposts or The Essential Proofs of Real Christianity. One of the questions that's been asked, I suppose, since the beginning of time, asked in the ancient world, asked in the world of the first century, and certainly asked in the world today is this, how can I know that it's real? You see, we ask this question, how can I know that it's real? Because we live in the age of counterfeit, the age of forgery. We ask this about money. Just the other day, 
Someone was in the shop, they had a 20 pound note And the girl was querying the validity of that 20 pound note And she has to ask her manager for permission to accept it Recently been in the news that somewhere in London They found hundreds of thousands of counterfeit um, Bank of England money And of course there is such a thing as counterfeit money Whether in pounds or euros or dollars There's also counterfeit artwork that's out there There's many forgers have forged paintings um, of the masters And tried to pass them off as authentic and genuine And even sold them for millions of pounds And some of the great um, art uh, works that have been sold Have been sold through some of the uh, biggest um, uh, Places like Sotheby's and Christie's uh, And even they have been filled There are also counterfeit antiques Selling them on as something that's genuine We all value the real thing But how can we identify the real thing? It's not easy And we do then attempt to listen to the experts Experts in the Bank of England, experts in the art world, experts in relation to antiques. The Apostle Paul knew that it was easy to fake a testimony. He, he knew that it was easy to um, uh, fake uh, uh, living the Christian life that wasn't real, true or genuine. And in his day, there were those who faked it. They had a false testimony and they had embraced false teaching. Now remember, the Apostle Paul's in prison for the sake of Christ and the gospel. He's under house arrest in Rome. He's cut off from his chief passion. He's cut off from his people. He is, however, in the providence of God, allowed visitors, certainly for the space of two years at least. And one such visitor to the house there was a man by the name of Epaphras. Epaphras, at this time, was the minister of Colossae. He was a convert of Paul, and whenever he was converted and went back to Colossae and preached the gospel, soon a New Testament church was founded there. It met, first of all, in the house of Philemon. And now the church is under threat, and that threat is real. So he travels to Rome. He shares with Paul all about the work of God in Colossae. He especially flags up the great and present danger the church is facing. The danger of Greek philosophy, the danger of Jewish ceremony and good works being added to the gospel. And of course, it's proof that these individuals don't know Jesus Christ and don't know the gospel. What they profess to believe is not true. You see, the Greeks taught that you needed Christ plus knowledge or wisdom that equals salvation. The Jews taught that you needed Christ plus good works, plus keeping the law in order to have salvation. And Paul knew that it was all false. So did Epaphras. He heard how many of the believers at Colossae were unsettled and confused by all this false teaching. They have been told, now you need to observe certain holy days and stop eating certain foods. Plus, you also um, uh, need to keep uh, certain ceremonies and rituals You need to know Jesus uh, Plus the special wisdom we impart to you You need to have insight to follow our rules In order to be saved In other words, the gospel's not enough 
The gospel that Epaphras has presented to you is not accurate. It's not authentic. And Paul wanted to encourage them. He wanted to reassure them that the gospel preached by Epaphras to them, the gospel that they had heard and believed, was real, true, and genuine. And how did he prove it? Here's the answer. By the transformation and the fruit that was evident in their lives. Their lives had been changed and transformed by the grace of God. You see, these false teachers, they had a wrong view of the gospel because their lives had not been changed and transformed by the grace of God. There was no proof to prove that they had a true testimony and that they held to a true understanding of the gospel. Paul doesn't begin by exposing the heretics. He doesn't name and shame them at the start. No, he begins to encourage the holy. He wants to encourage the heavenly ones. He assures them of his love, of his prayers for them. When Paul heard and learned from Epaphras about the saints at Colossae, he was thrilled. He was absolutely delighted. Remember, he's a prisoner in Rome. He's faced many difficulties of himself. He's got many problems. There's much to discourage him. Yet he's thrilled with the work of God in Colossae. Church in Colossae was far from perfect. Here it is facing this threat on two fronts. Greek philosophy and Jewish ceremony and good works. And what does he do? Despite this, Paul is full of joy. He's full of thanksgiving for this church. This was a good church. This was a faithful church. This was a church, even though it was insignificant and small, worth protecting, worth preserving. Why? Because there was evidence, there was proof that these believers at Colossae had been gripped and changed by the very essence of the gospel. Notice the proofs, three things. Verse 4, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. One, the love which you have to all the saints. Two, for the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. Faith in Christ Jesus Love which you have to all the saints. Hope which is laid up for you in heaven. Here are the three main proofs or the three main signposts of a real, true, authentic Christianity. Paul, the gospel expert, he, he has heard about these people. Their faith in Christ Jesus, their love for all the saints and the hope that, that they have for heaven. And he realizes that these Colossian believers, because they have the gift and grace of faith, love and hope, these are real, true, genuine believers. They are new creatures in Christ. Their life has been changed and transformed. In 2 Corinthians 5, 17, the Bible says, If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. All things have passed away and all things have become new and all things are of God. Now, if a man's life is not changed, not transformed, if a man's not different, if he's not ruled by faith and love and hope, if he doesn't have these three signposts in his life, if he doesn't have these three proofs, then you've got to question the validity of his profession of faith. Paul has never met these people in Colossae. He has never set foot in the town of Colossae. He has simply heard the report. 
How these pagans have become pardoned. How these sinners have now got saved. And he questions Epaphras. And when he hears, and we're going to discover this, what he hears about them. He hears these essential three things. Their faith in Christ Jesus, their love to all the saints, and their hope for heaven. He is so thankful to the Lord. He begins, as he says in verse 3, we give thanks to God and the Father for Lord Jesus Christ. Praying always for you. Notice as we think of these signposts of authentic Christianity, the thankfulness he expresses. Why he is so thankful. He's so thankful for these three proofs in their life. Their faith in Christ Jesus, their love for all the saints, and the hope that they have of heaven. You see, Paul knows that God is the author and the giver of so great and wonderful salvation. He doesn't congratulate them for their exercise of free will. He doesn't praise them for making an excellent choice. You think of times in the past when you've been out for a meal. Maybe it's been even on a Valentine's Day night. And the waiter comes along and say, for example, it's myself, I, I would order uh, steak. And my wife, Rosie, well, she would order salmon. Uh, and the waiter would say, excellent choice, sir. Of course, that's to make me feel good. That's to make me feel that I'm like a, a culinary genius. I, I always choose steak, mostly if it's on the menu. But Paul's not praising them for that. No once Paul heard that these Colossian believers had a genuine faith in Jesus Christ, that they had a love for one another, that they had a sure and certain hope of heaven, he knew that this was a real, true, genuine profession of faith. He knew that this was real, true, genuine, authentic Christianity. So in light of that, he gives thanks to God. It's an appreciation of the evidence of new birth. The dead have been made to live. And because they are alive and live to God, they have a love for the things of God. Paul, of course, knows that God is sovereign in the saving of the sinners. The Bible teaches us it's good to give thanks unto the Lord, be thankful unto him, and bless his name. Bible says in everything give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you and there's many things that you can thank God for today can you thank God physically for your health and strength thank God that he's the God who holds and gives you breath day by day can you thank God for every temporal and material blessing all that you needed to sustain your life God has provided can you thank God for everything spiritually you think of all the specific things that God has given to us. Is it any wonder the hymn writer says, count your blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what God has done. But Paul is not only thankful for these people. Paul is prayerful for these people. Notice the words. We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Epaphras could take the word back to Colossae and say to the church, Paul is praying for you with all the multitudinous of his problems and difficulty. Paul is remembering you in prayer. He's praying that you'll grow. 
He's praying for the grace of God that's manifested in your life. He's praying that you'll get the gospel out to other people. You see, some people have said to me in the past, if God is sovereign reverend in the saving of sinners, why waste time to pray for people to be saved? Of course, it's not wasting time to pray for people to be saved. That's a lie of the devil. The Bible says, for this I'll yet be inquired of by the house of Israel to do it for them. God has appointed means and praying for lost souls of one of those means. Why do we pray for lost souls to be saved? Here's the answer. Because only God is able to awaken dead sinners to life. Only God is able to change their stubborn and rebellious heart. Only God is able to open the eyes of the darkened mind. Only God is able to change the diseased affections. And only God is able to give them newness of life. You see, only God is mighty to save. Imagine God saying to us, well, well, don't pray for that person or that man because it's not up to me. It's really up to them. I would love to save them. I would like them to be saved, but it's not up to me. I do hope they will decide for me. But you see, they'll never decide for God. They'll have no inkling or thought after God until they're born again of the Holy Spirit. It's not what Jesus said. Marvel not that I say unto thee, you must be born again. The Spirit of God must operate on the dead soul and awaken that soul to newness of life. Ephesians 2 and 1. And you who were dead in trespasses and sins, hath he quickened on the newness of life. And, and once you're born of the Spirit, then your will will be changed and you'll exercise faith in Christ and the blood will be applied and you'll become a new creature and you, you'll be inclined to the Lord. See, here's Paul. And he's not only thankful, but he's prayerful. And, 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 and he's explained to us the reason why he's thankful and, and why he's prayerful. Because he sees and understands, having heard from Epaphras, the true proofs or the real signposts of authentic Christianity at work in Colossae in the hearts and lives of these people. Not only does the thankfulness he expressed be revealed here, but think of the truths that he expounds. Look at verse 4. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. That's a truth. The love which you have to all the saints. There's the second truth. For the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. There's the third truth he expounds. Let's back up a little. Think of the words faith in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? One day, George Whitfield was speaking to a particular man. They were discussing the things of God. I don't know whether this man was an Irish man or not. He may not have been. But George asked him the question, What do you believe? The man replied, I believe what the church teaches. So Whitfield, not to be outdone, asked the man, Well, well, what does the church believe? Well, what does the church teach? He replied, they believe what I believe. So he asked again, well, what do you believe? And the man replied, well, we both believe the same thing. In other words, the man hadn't a clue. He must have been an Irish man. You see, many do not have a clue today about the gospel. 
Many today have a lack of understanding as to what the gospel is. And that's true of the ecumenical movement. That's true of the charismatic movement. That's true today of so many Pentecostal churches. That's true today of so many modern-day fundamental churches. Could it even be true of some Reformed churches? Could it even be true of ministers and elders in our own free Presbyterian church? That we don't really have a good understanding of what the gospel is. All we have is a caricature of the gospel. We've got a little narrow truth of the gospel. One truth, one particular feature, and we make that the whole picture. It was the late Dr. Kearns that coined the phrase, having a caricature of the gospel. In other words, that one truth that's not the whole gospel is out of focus because you've made that one truth to be the whole gospel. See, many today in our modern world don't understand what the gospel is. Their mind is blank. They haven't a clue. But here's this little church. It's three to five years old. And here's one of the truths that Paul expounds about these people is they have faith in Christ Jesus. What did, hear, what did Paul hear about them? He heard that they had a grasp of and an understanding of the great truths of the gospel. Notice the foundational grace, faith in Christ Jesus. There was evidence that they were a true Christian. There's evidence that they were a true Bible-believing church. You see, true Christianity, becoming a true Christian, starts with this foundational grace. Faith in Christ Jesus. The Christian life in its beginning, its commencement, its operation, its consummation, starts with faith. And ends with faith in Christ Jesus. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8 and 9, we read the words, For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Now how does a man get saved? How does a man become a Christian? Remember the Philippian jailer asked Paul the question, What must I do to be saved? And what was his answer? The answer is this, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. I want to tell you this morning, now listen to me carefully. It's not enough to say, I believe. Or not enough to say, well, I believe what the church teaches. It's not enough to say, well, but I'm a believer. Let me ask this, who do you believe in? What do you believe you see, the gospel that we believe is not merely an ethical or a moral message. Now, now, that's included. It's not even just a theological or a doctrinal message. That's included. But the gospel that we believe is a good news message of the person and work of Christ. First and foremost, it's a good news message. And here's a summary of the good news. That God in Christ... Out of love, sent forth his only begotten Son. Come into the world via the incarnation and the virgin birth. 
and come to seek and to save sinners who deserved hell, wrath and judgment. Think of John 3 and 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And remember the message of the angels to the shepherds when the Christ was born? It says this, And the angel said unto them, Look to and ten, fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. Verse 11, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And you need to grasp, you need to understand this good news. And in order to understand and grasp the good news, you need to grasp and understand the bad news. And what's the bad news? Romans 3 and 23. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We're all sinners. We all stand before a holy God, condemned and lost. We can't save ourselves. We need a Savior. And the only Savior is Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of the everlasting Father. Incarnated in the womb of the Virgin Born of the Virgin Mary in the fullness of time Took human flesh via the virgin birth He is the only saviour that God sent And by his birth and by his life and death He procured salvation And salvation now is offered Salvation is offered as a free gift Salvation can be planted in the soul through the work of the new birth. In Romans chapter 4 and in the verse 5, the Bible says this. Let's hear the word of God. But the him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Now, what is faith in Jesus Christ? I could give you a number of good definitions. We think of our shorter catechism, what is faith? Look it up there. It's a tremendous definition. But Dr. Alan Kearns, the late Dr. Kearns, whenever he dealt with this subject, he quoted an old Scottish preacher by the name of Dr. Brown of Edinburgh. And this was Dr. Brown of Edinburgh's definition. Faith is a sinner believing on Jesus Christ to the saving of a soul. Isn't that tremendous? Isn't that so valid, so relevant? Isn't that excellent? Faith is a, is a sinner believing on Jesus Christ to the saving of a soul. You see, faith in Christ Jesus has to do with the act of believing. And surely there's no greater reason to thank God, no greater reason to be joyful than to think that this foundational grace is evident and manifest in your life and mine, manifest in the life of God's people. If I ask this morning what rejoices and thrills your heart, is it you have got great education? Is it that you have made so many achievements already in your short life? That you've got this attainment to your name or that attainment? That you've got great wealth? That, that you're big into sports and so on and so forth? Surely this goes to the heart of it. This surely should rejoice the heart. 
that you've got a real, true, genuine faith in Jesus Christ. That you as a sinner believed on the Lord Jesus Christ to the saving of your soul. That's what's in view, the act of believing. You see, I can say this morning, I believe in Jesus Christ to the saving of my soul. Now, many don't. Many say, I believe, but they never tell us who they believe in or what they believe. You see, many today in the Christian community, in Christianity abroad, don't believe in the person and work of Jesus Christ. They say, I believe, but they actually believe in nothing about the person and work of Christ. See, the gospel has content. It's not simply just believe. It's believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's believing in whom? It's believing in what? You see, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ includes his incarnation, his virgin birth, his sinless life, his atoning death, his bodily resurrection, his ascension to glory, his eternal priesthood, his eternal sonship, his sure and certain return as king of kings. You see, there are some preachers today that tell us certain things don't matter. Certain things are not essential. Certain things that the church is not preaching or the church is not emphasizing. I heard of one preacher who said that the church never said you had to believe in the incarnation of the virgin birth or the atoning death of Christ in order to be a Christian. But it doesn't matter what the church says or doesn't say. It's what the Bible says. Even the late Billy Graham said that the... uh, Church doesn't matter what you believe. But I want to say this morning there are things that matter. To the law and to the testimony, if we speak not according to this word, it's because there's no light in them. We are judged by the Bible. We're not coming to the Bible to criticize the Holy Scriptures. We allow this pure, precious, powerful word speak to us. We allow the book to judge us, the the book to speak to us, the the book to criticize us, the book to challenge us. Why? Because God has spoken. And here's the words. And the preacher, like Epaphras, he was a heralder of truth in Colossae. He didn't make the truth. And we live in a day when many want to subvert the gospel. Many want to add to the gospel. They, They want to add the wisdom of men. They want to add certain works and ceremonies and rituals. But when you add works to the grace of faith, whether pre-conversion or post-conversion, anything that adds to Jesus Christ that must contribute to our acceptance before God, that's a departure from the gospel. That's not true Bible-believing Christianity. You see, the truth is in Jesus Christ. And why am I emphasizing this? Because today we have people who talk about people of faith. The Pope talks about people of faith. Preachers talk about people of faith. What do they mean? Jehovah Witnesses, the Mormons, the Muslims, the the Buddhists, the Unitarians. They're all people of faith. But Paul is emphasizing it's faith in Christ Jesus. People want to say that the act of believing, it's all that matters. But in the New Testament, the act of believing, while that act of believing is real, 
It's only real if the object of that faith is Jesus Christ. It's faith in Christ Jesus. It's faith that embraces that body of revealed truth that's found in Christ. It's faith that's got Christ alone for its object. It focuses on his person, who he is. It focuses on the work that he has done, especially his substitutionary atonement. It focuses on his offices of prophet, priest, and king. It's the whole Christ. Notice the wording here. Christ Jesus. He's already mentioned the full title, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's tremendous that we can focus on this because you've got the thought that the whole Christ is in view. Two distinct natures in one person forever. Christ who possessed all the attributes of deity and attributes of true humanity. One sinless, spotless, holy Son of God. You see, before the gospel can be believed, it must be heard. And it must be understood and revealed to the mind. And it must be learned. Who is Jesus Christ? What did he do? What is he like? Why has he come? It's faith in Christ. Resting alone in him for salvation. Trusting in him. It's all found in him. There's no real merit in faith. It's, it's not faith in faith. The merit is in him. Faith is a gift that lays hold of Christ. And that faith is professed by the lip. That faith is proven by the life. And our loyalty and love to him. It's a picture of being in union and communion with him. This is not a make-believe. This is not... Um, um, a myth. This is not wishful thinking. It's not that you make yourself believe because you want it badly enough. This faith is a gift of God. This gift is born and produced uh, out of the new birth, the operation of God in the soul. I want to ask the question this morning. Have you faith in Christ Jesus? Notice the second truth that he expounds. He says here, love to all the saints. I want you to underline that. There's the relational grace. The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. And that love is seen and evidenced in how we treat other people, especially fellow believers, those that belong to the household of faith, those that are saints. Notice the words here. Um, Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love which you have to all the saints were saved not only to serve God, but were saved to love. True saving faith transforms the heart and life. And one of those evidences of transformation is we have a love for other people. There's a love for one another. And it proves the validity and reality of our true saving faith. Love, remember, is the fruit of the Spirit. If you link it up with verse 8. In Colossians chapter 1, who also declared unto us your love in the Spirit. This love was produced by the Spirit of God. Over there in the book of Colossians, or sorry, Galatians, in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 22, uh, listen to what the apostle says there. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. It's a ninefold fruit, but, but it begins with love. 
Because love is the greatest of all gifts. True love works because of a real, true, genuine faith. Over there, the Apostle John said, We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. 1 John 3 and 14. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer, and ye know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Do, do you catch that? We're not saved because we love the brethren. We love the brethren because we have faith in Christ Jesus. True saving faith in Christ produces a love for the brethren. And that love is selfless. That love seeks the good of others, even at a personal cost. There's a, a camaraderie with God's people. And could I encourage you this morning, young and old, let, let's not be behind to send the odd letter, to make that phone call, to forward that text, to have time for our dear friends in the gospel, fellow believers. If you've been hurt by a fellow believer, then go to them. Tell them that they've hurt you. Ask for their forgiveness. You see, we, we must get to know one another. We must be together. But if we come in and meet each other and don't speak, look at each other oddly, we will go away with a bad feeling. And that can't be right. The Lord Jesus said, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. You see, it's more than just words. It's actions. I want to do others good. I want to help them. You see, many today have no love nor heart for the people of God. Many have no love for true uh, spiritual relatives. If God's our Father and Jesus Christ is our Savior, we're born of the one Spirit and washed in the one blood, then I have to ask the question, could we hate members of our own family? The answer to that is no. We must have a genuine love for family members. What is true physically has to be true spiritually. We're not to be angry or bitter or, or to show malice to one another. We're not to use our tongue in this way. We're not to use our time in this way. We're not to use our talents in this way. You see, love is the commitment to do the people of God good in our heart, in our mind, in our soul. It's to do good to all men, the Bible says, especially they who are the household of faith, all the saints. It's, it's a love to all the saints, the sweet ones, and even the sour ones. It's to help them, to pray for them. It's because we have a love in the Spirit that, that we, we show this love to the saints. It's, it's the Spirit's love. It's his gift that, 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 that helps us to reach out in a, in, a, in a human relationship one to another. Remember what the Bible tells us there in the book of Ephesians? I often think of it. Ephesians 4, it says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. That's what love is. 
It's being kind one to another, helping one another, being tender-hearted, forgiving one another, praying for one another, wanting to do each other good, encouraging one another. And I, I say to our young people, that's what you must do. I was greatly struck by Derek Preston's testimony the other night, um, last Sunday evening, in fact, when he, he was sharing uh, with, with Phil and James on, on the um, Serve program. And he reminded me of just the evidence of love that was there um, by uh, our, our, our brother and sister down in Tandragee, uh, Noel and Elder Barry. And, 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 and the camaraderie and the love that was there among the young people. They were friends with one another. Well, we want to create that here in Carried Off. We want people to be loved and people to be uh, wanted and, and people to feel that they're needed. And we want to make everyone feel special. That's what love to the saints is all about. Notice the third proof. Hope laid up for you in heaven. Here's the third truth that, that he explained. The emphasis is on hope, our inheritance. He's thinking of inspirational grace, something that you're looking forward to, something you're excited by. If you go back to our text there in the book of Colossians, notice the wording here. He says this. In Colossians chapter 1 and verse 5, for the hope. That word for means because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. In other words, here's the reason that we're spurred on. We've got an eternal reality. It doesn't depend on our feelings. It doesn't depend on our circumstances. This, this is real. This is everlasting glory. This is a real true hope. This inspires confidence. This brings us assurance. This, this is reserved in heaven at this minute for us. And these people were gripped with that eternal reality. And they lived in light of it. Living in light of eternity with the assurance that one day for me, it'll be absent from the body and present with the Lord. And these authentic proofs, these signposts of authentic Christianity, not only the thankfulness he emphasizes and the truth that he explains, but think of the test that he evidences. If you go back to our text in verse 4, it says, since we heard of. Since we heard of. How do you know that you're a real true believer? Have others heard of your faith in Christ Jesus? Has others heard of your love to the saints? Has others heard of the hope that you have for heaven? Now ask yourself. Have you exercised that act of believing? When you come as a weary sinner and cried out, Lord save me, I perish. Have you embraced that body of truth? Not only the good news, but, but the contents of the gospel. All that the Bible teaches about the personal work of Christ, even though you can't fully understand it, you say, I believe what the Bible teaches. You've embraced that as a body of your own truth. Do you have a love for all the saints? Or are there people that you hate and despise and say, she has hurt me, he has done this to me, I'm never going to speak to them. Do you know what's wrong for people to come into the house of God and sit alongside each other? I know you're not here, but not speak to them. You think of the atmosphere in a home this morning. If there's someone in the home not speaking to another person. Maybe a husband has fallen out with the wife. Or, or the wife has fallen out with the husband because he forgot flowers or a card on Valentine's Day. And there's a silence. And there's cold shoulder. And there's maybe even hot tongue. There has to be love. 
Love has to be seen. Love is the greatest of gifts. It's the fruit of the Spirit. And true and genuine love is only produced by the Spirit and manifest because the Spirit is operational within our hearts and lives. Is that seen in your life? You have to ask yourself. Epaphras could tell Paul. And Paul heard of this. And he says, For the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof ye heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. They heard about heaven when Paul preached it in Ephesus. And they heard it from Epaphras. And here's the test that's evident. Since we heard. Have people heard of your faith in Christ? Your love to the saints, the things that you do to do others good? Do, do they hear about your hope in heaven because you testify and tell them that you've got assurance? Remember David could say in Psalm 23, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Do you have the assurance? Don't depend on the church, yourself, your good works, depending on Christ and on Christ alone. I, I present this morning these proofs of real, true Bible belief in Christianity. And I pray that the Lord will help us to be thankful and express that. Help us to explain and understand these truths and help us to see these tests that we can apply in our own hearts and lives. The Lord bless you this morning. Thank you for listening. If I can be of any help to any soul, please come back and speak to me in Jesus' name.